All right, we are continuing in our uh, look at the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are in chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17 today, and I, I can say this at the beginning of the message, but, um, you know, as I've been working through this, God has just been touching my heart. I told Gail, I said, you know, when I'm speaking from these passages, it's like I'm sitting in the front row too listening to this because I need to apply all of these things in my life too. And uh, it's good. It's good to preach that way when God's um, convicting you of things in your life that you need to work on and to be able to share that with others. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your encouragement as we work our way through this text and may God use it in our life today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. And as we look at it this morning, would you work in us by your Holy Spirit and would you speak in power through the scriptures? Thank you for this wonderful gift that you have given to us so that we can know you better. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Listen to this passage, Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Well, one of the most widely read books in Scripture uh, excuse me, one of the most widely read books in the world is the book Pilgrim's Progress. It really has been second only to the Bible in terms of its sales and number of people who have read this book. And I'm sure many of you have also looked at it or you've read it to your children when they were growing up. We did that several times, actually. And it is a great book. It was written late in the 17th century while John Bunyan was in the Bedford County Jail. He was a nonconformist. He was a pastor. And because he was a nonconformist and preaching outside of the official church, he would get in trouble. And he was arrested and thrown into jail for his teachings during what was called the Great Persecution in England between 1660 and 1690. Now, we don't always think of England being a place of great persecution, but at that time it was. These religious wars that were ravaging Europe also affected England and their views about Christianity. And so Pilgrim's Progress was written from a jail. A large part of it was written while he had that time there. And the story, as you, if you are familiar with it, in part one is the story of a man named Christian who was on a journey from this world to the celestial city. And this picture here is just an illustration taken from one of the books that shows Christian leaving the city of destruction. And he has a Bible in his hand and he's got this burden on his back and he's trying to find his way toward heaven. 
What makes this story so appealing are the things that he deals with in his life and the places he goes and the things that he encounters that all of us can relate to. I mean, Christian on his journey will go through Vanity Fair and he'll be confronted with the temptations of this world. He'll go through the valley of humiliation that speaks of his own sin and need. He'll go through the village of morality of those who think that they are right with God because they are moral, but they know nothing about him. He'll encounter the hill of difficulty, the slew of despond or depression, discouragement, doubt. And he also encounters many unforgettable characters along the way, like Mr. Worldly Wiseman, who has things that he wants to tell him. He'll run into Lord Hate Good and also Giant Despair. And those names are just so rich. When you hear that and you read this story, you get it, and you can imagine those things in your own mind as you think about these struggles that he is having and that you also have had. And we are reminded on his journey how important it is that we have friends, companions, brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage us along the way. Because with his good companions, hopeful and faithful, and with the help of others like Evangelist and Mr. Valiant for Truth, Christian will overcome all his enemies and arrive at his heavenly home. And part two of the Pilgrim's Progress describes the journey of his wife, Christiana, and their children who will follow him to the celestial city. You know, when I think about what Bunyan wrote there, I think the idea for that book came from the passage that we are going to look at today. Because it's a passage that talks about how we are pilgrims on a journey. And we too are on this journey that will take us from this life to the next. The journey is long and hard, but there are joys and delights along the way, and we know that. Life is a mixture of those tough things, those trials that we encounter, but there are also these joys and these delights, these relationships that enrich life and keep us going. Our goal is heaven. It's the new Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about that next week as we continue in the second half of this passage. This new Jerusalem, this place that we are looking forward to seeing one day, and our eyes are on Christ. He's our trailblazer. He's the one who's opened the way for us to heaven. And we are to keep our eyes on Christ and follow him. So what is this passage about that we're looking at this morning? Well, this is about priorities. It's about priorities for pilgrims. That if we understand that our life is this journey and we are headed toward heaven, then there are certain things that we need to do. There's a certain way we are to live. There are certain things we are to put behind us. And so in this brief passage that we're looking at this morning, he highlights four priorities for us as pilgrims. Number one, we need to be strong. Be strong. In verses 12 and 13 again, he says that we are to strengthen feeble arms or feeble hands and weak knees. We're to build them up for this journey and we are to make level paths for our feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather be healed. If we are going to run this race to the end, it will require great strength. And where does that strength come from? 
It comes from God and his word. It's not our own human strength that's going to muscle us through this. It is God who gives us his grace, and we need that grace daily. So just like an athletic trainer would push on an athlete to do more than he thinks he can do, the author of Hebrews is urging us to pump up those arms and build up those needs and do the things that we need to do to be strong and to face this journey. Well, what is it that we need as Christians? Well, we need a good diet. We need the word and prayer. We can't be living on junk food. If the bulk of our time is spent, you know, on things like watching television or paying attention to what the media has to say for the latest things or focusing on the internet and spending a lot of our time just flipping through things that are on, you know, media or social media or things like that, and we are not regularly spending good quality time in the Word, it's going to affect us. The only way that we're going to grow stronger in our faith is to spend that time with God in His Word and in His prayer, and that Word becomes our daily bread, our food. We need exercise. That's why we come to worship. We come to lift up our arms and to praise him. We need service. We need to use our gifts in serving others. And it opens our eyes to the needs of the people around us. And we see how God can use us. We need to take steps of faith and be obedient to what God has said. Because that stretches us. That builds up our muscles. Faith is like a muscle that needs to be used. And the more we use it, the stronger we grow. We need training to be better equipped. We need to understand our faith and how we can defend it or how we can communicate it more clearly. We need to develop our gifts and service that God has given to us. We need to understand what it means to be disciple makers and how can we do that more effectively. We need partners, people who will walk this journey with us just like Christian had. We need those who will lift us up when we are down or discouraged, those who will pray for us when we have needs, those who will encourage us to do things that we didn't think we could do. We need a concern for others. We are not alone on this journey. He talks about making level paths for our feet or clearing out the clutter in our lives. And one of the things that you see there is he's not only talking about us, but he's talking about so that the lame may not be disabled. There are others who are journeying with us who may be struggling with things in their life, and we're not just to look out for ourselves, but we are pilgrims on a journey with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need one another. And we need courage. We need courage to run this race to the end. You know, one of the things that encourages me is to read history and to read biographies and to hear what other Christians have wrestled with in their life and the things that they are faced. Because sometimes we can be a little myopic and we can think that our times are the worst of times or that what we're dealing with now, boy, this is really tough. And when you read about the history of the church and you see what other people have struggled with, it gives you some perspective. But you know what? Things aren't as bad as they may seem. There are things that other believers have gone through that have been far worse. For example, in the year 1555 in England, 
100 years before Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, the tide of power had changed in England, and there were two men who were reformers who were sentenced to die for their beliefs. Their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were pastors. They were leaders of the Reformation in England. They were powerful preachers, and they were best of friends. And they wrote often to one another in their correspondence to encourage each other in their faith. But they had enemies because of their preaching of the gospel. And the day came when they were arrested, and they were pressured to recant to their faith, but they would not. They would not recant of their belief that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And they were sentenced to be burned at the stake. I cannot imagine how horrible that would be. I mean, when we think of the pain of a little bit of fire or a burn in our hands, and I think of what was done back in that time where people were burned at the stake and pressured to recant, and these men would not do that. And as they were set on these pyres and tied with their hands to the stake behind them, Latimer said to his friend, he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Be of good courage, play the man which means be the man. Be men of courage. Be men who will stand for your convictions. And you know it was because of men like Wycliffe and Tyndale and Latimer and Ridley and others that we have our Bibles today. I mean, they were people who brought the gospel to England and paid for it with their lives because they had set their hope in Christ and they believed in the truth of his word and they were willing to pay that ultimate price so that one day you and I could have the gospel. We are also to be peacemakers. In verse 14, he talks about making every effort to live in peace with all men. When it talks about making every effort, this isn't just a casual thing. This is something that we are to be intent on. We're actually something we are to pursue. Um, we are to make it our aim to be peacemakers in our world. I think of the conversations that I and a couple others in our church have every month with Pastor Obispo down in Guatemala. And one of his prayers every month that he asks for is to pray for peace between these neighboring villages that are struggling. And Pastor Obispo is a peacemaker. He's trying to bring peace between these people. And sometimes it's a little better, sometimes it's not. But there is rivalry, there's jealousy, there's hatred, there's discord, there are old feelings that go way back. It's hard to be a peacemaker. But that's his prayer. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul urged the Christians living at that time, and again, remember, this is under Nero, Nero who will launch these waves of persecution against the church. And here's what Paul is saying in Romans 12, kind of bullet-pointing it. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Don't fall into that trap. The world may hate you, it may mistreat you, it may throw you in jail, it may even put some of you to death. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. I mean, it's a recognition that we can't solve everything other people need to make their choice and how they're going to respond to, but on our part, we can do our part to be peacemakers. We can do our part to settle an argument or a difference or a dispute and then leave it in God's hands. Do not take revenge. Don't say, you know, boy, I'm going to get you. You hurt me. I'm going to hurt you or I'm going to get back at you. But instead, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That isn't easy to do, is it? It's natural to want to respond when someone hurts us to want to get them back in some way. But it is Christ-like to respond in love. You know, it's interesting. I've been seeing this in a couple different places and articles I've read that are talking about the level of anger in America today. And we see that. And there's, there's just a lot of anger in this country right now. Uh, we saw the demonstrations with Black Lives Matter where blacks in America are angry about the way that they have been treated. And they are crying out for justice. We've seen Hispanics who are angry. We saw that at one of the uh, Trump rallies where they protested and it broke out in violence. We see it on the internet. If you ever, have you ever sometimes, like I'll read an, a Christian article and then I'll scroll down and I see the comments that are posted there and sometimes I'm shocked by how hateful the comments are that are the tag under something that is said. I mean, there's just a lot of anger there. And do you know what? We, as those who are kind of in America that are white Americans, are also angry. Here's what a NBC News survey and Esquire magazine uh, said about this. He said, we the people are ticked off. The body politic is burning up the anger that courses through our headlines and our news feeds about injustice, inequality, marginalization, disenfranchisement, about what they are doing to us. None of that shows any sign of abating. One of the most interesting statistics, half of all Americans are angrier today than they were a year ago. And white Americans are the angriest of them all, it said. Here's a summary of how they see life. From their views on the state of the American dream, it's dead. And America's role in the world, it's not what it used to be. How their life is working out for them, it's not quite what they had in mind. A plurality of whites tend to view life through a veil of disappointment. The first question in the survey asked about how often do you hear or read something in the news that makes you angry? The top three responses were 37% said once a day they hear or read something that makes them angry, 31% said a few times a day, and 20% said at least once a week. In total, about 88% of all Americans are angry at least once a week. We need to deal with that. I mean, if, if we find that in our heart, we need to deal with that attitude and bring that before God. 
I think of the passage in James that says, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Our anger does not bring about what God wants. So how do we relate to the world and the people around us when we see these culture wars going on and things moving away from Scripture and moving away from God's will and we feel like there's this loss that we see day after day after day and it's moving so quickly the way it feels? Do you know what the Scripture says? Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Two things. Pretty simple. At least simple to remember, not always simple to do. But love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love them. Show them a different way to live. Respond in this way, Jesus said, so that you may be sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Be peacemakers. Love those who maybe, you know, Today, they're just following the way the wind is blowing in the world, you know. They may not be blatantly antagonistic of Christianity, but they're taking stands that are going against Scripture or what God would say. But the way that we're going to change that is not by getting angry and lashing out in kind. The way that we're going to change our world is by helping them to know Jesus. So love your enemies and pray for those that you are struggling with. Thirdly, he says, be holy. In verse 14, he said, in that same way that we are to make every effort to live in peace with all men, we are to make every effort to be holy. And he adds that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Unless we have surrendered our heart to Christ, we come into a relationship with him where we are forgiven. And the evidence of that is a changed life and increasing holiness in our own life. We are not going to see the Lord. Now, when it comes to holiness, many people have a distorted view of what holiness is. I mean, there's a lot of people who think of holiness as being kind of strict or legalistic or no fun or it's kind of dour or it's kind of austere in the way that people live. When to be holy really means to be set apart for a purpose, we are set apart for Christ. And we are to live like Jesus lived. We're to live differently in this world. I, I think of holiness, and I think of the word fullness or wholeness, that a holy person is a whole person. It is really becoming who God made us to be. And in that fullness, there is fullness of joy. There is um, the giftedness that God uses. There is a passion for life. There is creativity. There is energy. There is love. There is kindness. There are all of these good qualities that God wants to give us and produce through our life that are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Westminster Convention confession makes it clear that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever and in his presence is fullness of joy so a holy person is someone who understands his calling we are called to glorify God to live in a way that honors him we are called to be ambassadors for Christ we're his representatives in the world we are called to go and make disciples to help others to know Jesus and grow in their faith and that that is our business if you will that's our main priority 
And along the way, we all have occupations that we do to provide for our needs and to care for our families and their needs. But our main business, if you will, is to honor God and live in a way that others can know him too. To be holy then, we need to deal with the sin in our life. We need to be clean vessels fit for his use. Instruments that he can use to reach others for Christ. You know, I think about this like, for example, when I go to the dentist and you're going to have your teeth cleaned, you know, it's not something you look forward to maybe when you're thinking about going, but afterwards it sure feels good. And, um, you know, you go, you go in there and they're laying out the tools that they're going to use to clean your teeth, for example, and you go in and you trust that those instruments are clean, don't you? I mean, I don't even think about it. I just trust that they're all going to be sterilized and clean, ready for use. And that's important. Would it make a difference to you if they weren't clean? You know, you'd have some concerns or you maybe wouldn't go back there again because the consequences of that could be really bad to your health. And when God looks for people that he can use, we are not perfect but we are forgiven. And we are to be in tune with God in such a way that we're listening to his Holy Spirit that when he prompts us, we'll obey, that we know the scriptures well enough that we can share that with others, that we've seen his grace in our life, that we can communicate that to people. We're to be holy vessels who are honest about our own sin and confess it to him and ask his forgiveness and are growing in Christ-likeness. That's the kind of people that God wants to use to be a witness by his grace. And fourth, he calls us in this passage to be mindful, to be mindful of certain things. That as pilgrims on this journey, we are not only concerned about our own relationship with Christ and where we are headed, but we are also concerned about the people around us, and we are to care for them too. He said, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Again, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau. See to it. Be mindful of these things. What's interesting in the way that this lays out in Greek is that the main command is to make every effort to live in peace and to be holy. Those are the two main instructions in this command. And the word see to it is actually a participle. It modifies how you do that. That's a little bit of grammar here behind this. But in these participles, he shows us four things that we are to look out for. As you think about going on this journey and you're thinking about the people around you and thinking about your own children and your grandchildren, here's what he says. We are to look out for apostasy. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Apostasy is those who are falling away from the faith. They may have professed faith in Christ. They may have started out looking like they were a Christian, but now where are they and where have they gone? And he's saying that we are to be concerned about that. We're to be concerned about those who have left the church or who are falling astray. See to it, as much as it is in our power 
that no one misses the grace of God or falls short of it. That was the writer of Hebrews' main concern in this letter that he wrote. He was concerned that persecution would cause some or even many to leave the faith. And so he wrote this encouraging. That's why these warning passages are in there. Don't let this happen to you. So what can we do for those who are walking away from the faith? We pray. We encourage. We come alongside or we reach out. We love them. We also speak the truth in love. We share these warnings as well, prayerfully, that God in his grace would get their attention and call them back. We get them into the scriptures and we let God do his work in their heart. A second thing we are to look out for is bitterness. And bitterness, particularly in the church. Because he tells us here that a bitter root can cause a lot of trouble and affect many people. And boy, is that true. I mean, if there is bitterness in someone's heart and they're upset about something that has happened in the church or in a relationship with another Christian, and they begin to talk about it rather than seek reconciliation, you know, if they begin to talk about it, all of a sudden you have a group that that grows and they kind of take up this person's offense and sometimes I've even seen this where eventually the person is reconciled but all the people who heard about it, they're still upset. And now instead of having one person that really needed to deal with whatever it was that was the issue, now you got a whole bunch of people that are concerned and upset and wondering about this and it just grows and it can sour people and there are times when churches have gone through splits where people have said, I'm never going to a church again. I don't have time for that. Or there's too much pain there. I don't want to work through those things. And you see the effects. And so Scripture here is saying to us, deal with those problems in a godly way. It's really living at peace with all men and applying it to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So how do we deal with conflict in the church? You talk to God first. You bring it before the Lord and you examine your own heart and you get the log out of your own eye first before you try to deal with the speck in somebody else's eye. That's what Jesus says to do. And then, if you've done that and you still feel like there's something you need to talk to, you go to your brother and sister and you talk with them. And you do it in private. You do it one-on-one and you talk about this. And if that doesn't work, then you bring another brother or sister with you who can help in resolving this. If it's with a ministry team that the issue is with, you go to that ministry team, you talk about it. If that doesn't solve it, you can go to the elders, you can go to the pastors, and we'll help in resolving these things. But in all of those things, it calls for humility calls for wisdom, grace, forgiveness. Sometimes there will be decisions made or there are conflicts that come up where Christians will just have to agree to disagree. You know, and and that's okay. I think of Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas were arguing about whether or not to take John Mark with them and it was such a strong division they both had opinions about this that they actually split on that journey and Paul and Silas would go and Barnabas would take Mark. And by the grace of God, in time, Mark would become this godly man who would write the second gospel 
and who later Paul would ask for him to come because Mark had proven himself in ministry. But at that particular moment in time, they had a division about how to do things. And I think that's where we need to look at these things and remember that the world is watching the church and how we deal with things and do we really love one another. But I think even more so, we need to remember that our children are watching us too. And our children are watching to see how we deal with conflict, how we deal with anger. How do we deal with issues when they come up? And can we model this in such a way that they will learn how to deal with things in their life in the future? Thirdly, sexual immorality. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've talked about this before uh, in previous passages, but he warns him against sexual immorality. It affects the very core of our being. It can cause many to stumble. It is a serious problem in our world. And godlessness, he mentions as the fourth one here. And a godless person is someone who lives without giving any thought to God or his ways. It just doesn't even come up on the radar. It's not something that they're consciously thinking about. And you know what's surprising here when he's talking about this is he's writing to the church. And you think somebody who's in the church ought to give more thought to what God would say about certain issues or things in their life. And the scripture here points to Esau as an example. And it says, don't be like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And then afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Esau was a man who lived by his appetites. Physically, morally, and sexually. He did what he felt like at the time. I mean, Esau is the epitome of the if it feels good, do it mentality. That's just the way he lived. You know, when it talks about sexual immorality, it doesn't specifically in Genesis mention uh, his actions in that area, but it does tell us that he took two wives who were unbelievers. They were Hittites. And they were a source of grief to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And you get the impression that here was a young man who rather than listening to his parents was rebellious and chose to marry whoever he wanted to marry, even though they were not believers, and it would turn his heart away from God. He was also hungry on this one occasion when he came in. He was famished. He wanted something to eat. And he so despised his own inheritance right that he sold his birthright for a single meal. And later when he regretted his decision, he couldn't get it back. He never really repented of his sins. He just regretted the consequences. As our choices make a difference in our life. You know, I was thinking about an example of this. There was a man, Ken Wales, who is an award-winning producer. He's also a believer. He started his Hollywood career as an actor, and it was not easy for him. Early in his career, Ken Wales chose to turn down a significant role because it conflicted with his faith in Christ. He was under contract with MGM, 
and he was cast in a film that starred Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, and Shirley MacLaine. Now, those are three people that have had pretty long careers and were successful in what they did, and that's the kind of film you'd like to be in if you could. But at one point in the script, his character was to entice a young woman to get drunk so he could take advantage of her. And Whale said, I had been speaking to a lot of church groups and conventions around the country on the subject of making right choices. So when I read the script, I had to meet with the director, Vincente Minnelli, and tell him I couldn't do it. And he told me, you'll do it or you will be out of your contract, you will go on suspension, you will have no salary for a year, and I'll see to it that you never work in this town again. And I told him he'd have to find someone else, and he literally threw me out of his office. I was put on suspension. When the film came out the following year, here's an interesting thing that happened. He's in Denver. He's speaking at a youth conference to hundreds of kids that are there. And one of the evenings, they broke for dinner, and they had a free evening. And some of the kids wanted to go out and see a movie or get a pizza or things like that. And as we started to walk across the street and down the street, there was this huge marquee sign with a sign for the movie that I'd turned down. And I thought that was interesting. What if I'd done that film and the kids had gone in and seen it? Whale said that declining that role propelled him into his current role as a film and TV producer. And he went on to produce the award-winning series Christie, and he also was the producer of the movie Amazing Grace. The choices we make today will affect the person we become tomorrow. And he chose to honor God, and God honored him. We are pilgrims on a journey. And God has called us to be strong, and we need to build up our hands, our arms, and our knees, and our feet. And we do that by the word of God. We are to be peacemakers who work for peace among all men. We are to be holy, honoring in the way that we live, in our lifestyle, and our choices. And we are to be mindful concerned not just about our own walk with God, but about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember the goal. We are on our way to heaven, to that celestial city, and we are to keep our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of Scripture that are so rich, so clear, and instructive. And help us to take them to heart today and where we may be struggling or where, where we may feel that our knees are weak, Lord, would you build us up. If we have not been in your word as we should, help us to make that a priority in our life. If we have brothers or sisters or those that we knew that were in church who have fallen away, Lord, help us to encourage them to reach out and to bring them back that all might come to know you and grow in that kind of rich and full and meaningful relationship with Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.